Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. Coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. In this week's episode... We're going to look at more antitrust headaches for Apple and the App Store, figure out why companies buy back stock, and Emmett and Roy are going to give their favourite female-led companies. So, before we get started today, Rory, I'm going to come to you for our nearly weekly Uber watch at this yeah. stage. Need an update on what's going on with Uber. They are public. The well, company that everyone loves to hate went public on Friday. It's been, I suppose, feels like 10 years now since um, since they started this whole going public fiasco. But yeah, finally went public on Friday. Uh, about a month ago, we were told it was going to be worth about $120 billion. Then Lyft went public. Before them, that kind of took the took the edge off the ride-sharing businesses after it took a quite extreme downward slope following going um, public. So they revised it downwards a couple of times, and in some financial circles, uh, or in the financial media anyway, this was seen as kind of a very grown-up measured thing to do, um, despite the fact they were still valuing themselves about $80 billion. Yeah. Uh, the shares were being priced at $45, and after all this, they basically just had to watch them stand on the trading floor on Friday for what seemed like hours, as no one wanted to buy their shares. <laughs> uh, it finally opened at 42. It took a big drop on Monday. That was probably a bit to do with the overall market. But yeah, it's been slowly crawling its way back up. We'll see how it'll perform today. But um, yeah, the Uber IPO was just like, do you know when you, someone lights a firework and everyone steps back and kind of watches and waits for it to go off and mm-hmm. then nothing happens? <laughs> and then there's that moment where no one wants to touch it in case it does go off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's where we are right now with Uber. That Everyone's just watching on. That's a great analogy. <laughs> did, yeah. did Lyft kind of ruin Uber's party though going first? I don't know if they ruined their party, but just, yeah, probably investors kind of looked at Lyft and thought I'd only part of that either. I'd only part of Lyft part two. I saw a great thing during the week. Um, Uber have released a new feature on their app. I think it might be just in the US at the minute, but it's where you can request a driver who doesn't talk to you at all. Like, if that's not a good <laughs> business prospect, I don't know what is. Uh, well, the Ubers I took in London, no one talked to you anyway. Wow. But, uh, in Dublin, I mean, if you could even get them to buy into it, talk a little bit less, it'd be a win. But it's like, I think Uber is like coming around to the fact that robo-taxis aren't happening anytime soon. They still have to pay these human beings meagre salaries. So if we can make them act like robots as much as possible, that'll uh, smooth the transition. So what's the bet that Uber will have a feature in 25 years where it will make your robo-driver actually chat with you? Yeah. <laughs> So, Maeve, I'm going to come to you next. And you you want to talk about Apple today. A very alliterative sentence, Apple's App Store Antitrust. Apple's App Store Antitrust. Tongue yeah. twister. Bit of a tongue twister. Yeah, we talked about this in a March podcast. I think it was our second podcast that we published uh, in the month of March. And basically what we were talking about then was a fairly um, direct spot from uh, Apple to Spotify and from Spotify to Apple between those two parties. And... It was Spotify feeling that Apple really have set up a monopoly where there's kind of unfair business practices and technical limitations for 
mobile subscription app providers. Um, obviously, there's a 30% levy that Apple take when a user subscribes to your app via their platform, which we know. Um, but Spotify's case was that it goes further than that and that Apple had started to treat them unfairly and kind of hold them at ransom um, and come down hard mid-review so that Spotify had to slip and slide around and find ways to allow users subscribe outside the platform uh, so that they had the right amount of revenue and the experience for the user was kind of good enough. And basically, Apple had a big loss at the Supreme Court when it comes to these kind of business practices, uh, which was kind of a big a big moment because I think it was an eight-year-long lawsuit. Um, it was a consumer-based lawsuit, so there was a number of complaints that basically Apple were being monopolistic when it came to being a retailer. Um, and an article from Market Watch here kind of describes why it's significant, which is that judges saw through the whole we're just here to facilitate argument and then a common excuse that Silicon Valley comes out with and says that actually those companies are ones that prefer to avoid any culpability or responsibility while taking huge cuts and exercising complete control over other platforms. So the Supreme Court has basically said to Apple that argument doesn't fly anymore. Basically they've said that's not going to wash anymore. Okay. You know, you are a retailer, there is consumer kind of liability here and let's talk about the fact that you are monopolistic. That last sentence sounded very like another big company that we talk about a lot here. <laughs> yeah, maybe a bit of a common thread. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think it is big news for Apple because they were definitely getting away with saying, look, we're not being terribly controlling, we're not the all-seeing eye and now they've been told, well, you've been doing things that are that are kind of unfair business practice-wise and you are kind of dampening down other apps' ability to gather subscribers, yeah. to generate revenue. And you know? This could be massive for Apple going forward, I think, because services is their future. Self-admittedly, Tim Cook has said, you know, this service is part of their business, pulled in $11.5 billion in the last quarter. It, this is the future for Apple, so if it's going to be facing increased regulation, what sort of what's Apple going to do? I think yeah. Apple TV Plus is going to more than make up for that. <laughs> Have you come around? No. <laughs> There's very few um, hardware manufacturers who don't eventually realise services are where it's at. You know. So yeah. It seems that Apple are just. I mean, they had so much to conquer with their hardware, and notwithstanding new versions of hardware in the form of possible dashboards or cars, you know this is the future for them. There's no doubt about it. So increased regulation will really put the brakes on it somewhat. Yeah, I mean, I think the way you phrased it when we talked about it in March, James, is that some people see them as the referee and the goalkeeper. Yeah. And like the way I see it now with this loss at the Supreme Court is that if they are, you know, being kind of competitive in a way where their conduct is unlawful, that they're going to keep getting called out now. Yeah. So I think it changes things. And it is, it's the argument we see as, as well with Google um, that, you know, at one side you say, well, they created it, they get to tell you how to use it. But at, at the other side, when these, you know, like Google Search or the Apple App Store become so massive and so important to, you know, the actual survival of many businesses, there needs to be there needs to be maybe an outside referee or outside set of rules. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Right. So moving on from Apple, Rory, you were looking at Zillow. Yeah, so lots. It's earnings season, lots of reports out. Uh, but the one that really struck with me was Zillow. The online real estate portal. Um, I was actually thinking this could be our company we never talk about as well because we never talk about Zillow really. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. It's because it's Z uh, or Z, uh, <laughs> right depending on where you're from. List. But um, we never get to it. We know. Yeah, we're, we're scrolling. <laughs> so it's Amazon, down, Apple, yeah. or Activision. <laughs> Uh, we also don't have Zillow here, so maybe we just don't have. That's that much true. It's of, not in our line of sight. Not in our line of sight. But uh, yes, yeah, so Zillow announced 
Um, I don't know if anyone remembers, but about a year ago, Zillow announced a new uh, business venture they were getting into called Offers, where they were essentially just going to buy homes off people and then sell them on. So uh, house flipping um, at the time didn't they announced it didn't go down well at all. The stock took a bit hit. Uh, they've since made a change at the top. They have a new CEO in Rich Barton, who's one of the founders, and he's going all in on this home buying service to what would appear to be good effect. Uh, so in the last report, they sold 414 homes, bringing in $128 million in revenue, and they bought uh, nearly 900 homes in the same period. So they're actually expanding quite rapidly. They're going to um, enter six new markets this year. Um, but just to put those numbers into perspective, the sales generated from the home buying side of the business is already 28% of their overall revenue. Um, so that's a huge wow. jump for uh, wow. something they I didn't, started I didn't a year know ago. that. Yeah, and their revenue grew 51% this quarter. Uh, but if you take out the home buying side of things, it actually only grew 8%. Right. So, uh, yeah, all the growth in this business is now coming from them house flipping. Uh, and the reason I think this is quite interesting is because it's a real, I think it's a signal of where real estate is going. Uh, there's a lot of new business models out there focusing on what's been called iBuying. Uh, we haven't really heard of it here much, it's, but it's become a big thing in the, in the States where essentially a company will buy your house off you and sell it for you. Um, and there's one company in particular called Open Door, which is currently valued about $2 billion. And what they basically do is you go onto Open Door's website, uh, you fill out a couple of a questionnaire, it takes about 10, 15 minutes. They use an algorithm to tell you how much they think the house is worth. And by the end of the week, they could have bought the house off you without even having seen it. Wow. Uh, and then they'll just put it up on their website and sell it. Um, and yeah, they take a they take a 7% cut off the transaction value, but they say they're giving people you know fair price for their homes. And um, I've never bought or sold a home, but I Googled it. It seems complicated. <laughs> Anyone want to Oh yeah, lean I, in? I, I bought one recently and I'm in the process of selling one too. Not my own family home, but uh, my folks' place. And uh, it is actually, it's, it's a complicated business. There's an awful lot of moving parts and players and friction and contracts. And when you look at a solution such as Zillow's, it takes away a headache. Yeah. And actually, as a, when I invested in Zillow first as a spot check, I decided to take a look at my sister-in-law's house. Um, she lives during the week in Manhattan, and then she and her family drive up to a small little town in the north of New York State called South Salem. And I had a look at her house, and, and the entire history of the house was documented to a level of detail I just couldn't believe um, from you know when it was built to who bought it, when, and what they paid, and a trend line of that property's price from inception through to this moment. And that was so powerful. And I guess one of the things it said to me was that in other markets, it seems the price of property is far more... Um, accurately priced um, that they, you can actually tell the price of your property in the US to a plus or minus a couple of percent. Yeah. Now, that would be my observation. I'm sure we've listeners who can correct me on that. And uh, I stand to be corrected. But it seems that uh, whereas in this market, which is a far smaller country with hotspots of demand and supply, you know, the, the, the movement of prices is it varies far, far more rapidly mm. in shorter periods of time. I think Zillow is an absolutely awesome company. You know, just like so just on the whole thing about like buying your buying and selling your house like really quickly. You know, that's one of the companies we love here is Twilio. And I think when we first uh, pitched it, it was that the company is on the cusp of um, a kind of new normal where consumers demand things happen right away. Yeah. Like Uber has to happen right away. You have to have one day delivery. Like everyone needs something happening right now with as little friction as possible. Anyone who works in customer service, Maeve, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. 
you need to get a response right away. Absolutely. And they're just like, it's the idea that you could sell your home in a day is mad to me. Yeah, it's crazy. But it is just kind of, you know, a company willing to, to cover up all the ugly parts of the process and mm. be a nice, mm. a nice way to do it and people will pay for that. A random fact about Zillow of no benefit or value to anyone whatsoever <laughs> is uh, when JT, uh, my Wall Street's co-founder, and I went out to Silicon Valley um, about five years ago, five and a half, sorry, six and a half years ago, I think, uh, we uh, were given an office in Zillow to whiteboard and figure mm. out our future. And it was very nice and looked like a lovely place to work. <laughs> There you go, end of fact. <laughs> Pretty exciting, I told you it'd be. <laughs> I wish there was a punchline to that one, but alas, no, that's it. So, the, okay, let me, I'm going to have to work on that story. Can we edit that out, John? <laughs> I'm only joking, we'll leave it in, it's leave so it gripping. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, so that was some of the recent news stories we'd been looking at. Emmett, company we never talk about. This is where one of our investing team, you, picks a company that you don't think it gets the attention it deserves. What company have you picked this week? This week I'm going for Copart, which... Um, so what do they do? So Copart is a company that provides vehicle suppliers and insurance companies with a range of services to sell salvage vehicles over the internet. So you could call it an eBay for cars. Yeah. And it's a company that's up 150% since we added it in. And it's very unglamorous and that's probably part of the reason why we never talk about it, unlike Zillow, which is yeah. all the way down at the bottom of the alphabet. Copart is up at the top at C, but it's still uh, it's an unglamorous business. It, so is it a bit of a Peter Lynch stock? Uh, yes, in fact, and it's a Peter Lynch stock that uh, has been teched up into the year 2019. Uh, like, at this moment, Copart has 152,937 vehicles for sale and I'm looking at its website right now so over 150,000 cars and jeeps and vans and trucks for sale so that's one big car lot yeah. and just like any industry and Zillow alike you want to buy the dominant name um, in the earlier stages of, of growth preferably yeah. so it would be nice to have bought shares in Coca-Cola in 1965. Yeah. Um, and kind of, I'm not saying that Copart is the Coca-Cola of car lots. Uh, it, may, <laughs> <laughs> it might actually be the Coca-Cola of car lots, but I don't think it has such mass market appeal as Coca-Cola. But um, firstly, I, I, I must thank uh, my good friend and my Wall Street's good friend Bill Mann for pointing this stock out to us when he came into us and uh, when he visited us here in Dublin about two years ago and he was staying out in my place and we were having a chat about stocks we know and love and I said Bill come on hit me with a, a pitch and it was Bill who pitched to me or actually to Rory and I maybe here in the office Copart as a as a as one of these ones you'd miss like a giant big car lot but what the founder and the, the team were doing at Copart was building out a um well, website, but in fact, is a tech engine to match buyers and sellers. And that's why it's easily explained as the eBay for for used cars and salvaged cars. And they have the dominant position in the in the space. They do. And their their Q3 earnings are happening in just a couple of days. So on yeah. May 22, we'll hear the latest news from Copart. But in the last round of news from Copart, and really is just news, I'm not a fan of quarterly earnings calls, as you know. Yeah. 
because business needs time to happen and every 12 weeks I think is crazy that the CEO and her, his team need to get in front of a microphone and explain to a room full of people how it's gone. But in the last quarter, uh, which was Q2, obviously there, uh, to quote their CFO, Jeffrey Law, L-I-A-W, Liao, um, a record, it was a record second quarter for revenue, gross profit and operating income uh, and basically uh, was was a growth in revenue globally of about 5.6%. So that was yeah. a quarter ago um, and the stock rocketed it afterwards. So February was an awesome month for Copart and as I mentioned, it's been uh, two and a half bagger for us yeah. uh, here at My Wall Street. So, um, so the things I'll be looking out for on the next conference call in a few days really is well for the first thing is earnings will be up or down I'd yeah. be willing to bet on that because <laughs> that's just the way it goes in 12 weeks as I said is short time but I came to hear something that the CEO said on the last call about further expansion into Europe now Copart are here in Ireland they're in the UK uh, and because they're they're effectively scrapyards or at least one step up, whatever you call it. Um, the car yards, they, you know, it's not glamorous. We wouldn't know much about it. But they are planning to expand into South America. They said further expansion into South America, which sounds like a big opportunity because when I looked on their website, they don't, from what I can see, have anything in South America. So it certainly is further expansion in and also further expansion in Europe. And it seems that the UK and Ireland uh, and one place in Spain seems to be their European operation. So what, what Copart has done, they have 200 locations across 11 countries. But what they actually do is they know how to widen the net. They now know they've, the business has learned how to expand into new markets in a business that on the surface looks simple, but it's actually quite complex. Yeah. You know, if they rock on into Italy, for example, a new market, mm. the first thing they'll have to do is buy an existing salvage operation, I presume, rebrand it, retech it. Um, and that, you know, that's a complex sequence of events that it's easy for me to say, but to enter a new market, all those challenges exist. And I think Copart can do it. They're very... Um, they're very richly priced at the moment, but it's very hard to find a cheap stock. But really, you know, they're the dominant force uh, in in salvaged cars. Can I just say when you say tech up, um, their website is not very tech up. <laughs> no, well, it's not very glamorous, but you you kind of think, considering the revenue improvements they've made as a result of... They, now, they have a fulfillment engine that they've... I'm afraid I've forgotten the name of it, but they, they have a, a, name, a very cool name on their tech suite, but... Uh, I agree with you, Rory. It's not easy. On <laughs> Is it the, the second eye. worst website of all the stocks we cover after <laughs> What's Berkshire? The worst? Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire oh Hathaway. yes, of Awful. course I know, but Awful. for value derived. You just, uh, <laughs> so that's Copart, and the ticker symbol is Emmet. CPRT, I presume. Cool. Um, so, oh, I have another thing to oh, say. Oh, quick, quick. Uh, have I? Okay. <clears throat> so uh, I did speak to a mentor of mine way, many, 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 many years ago when I was new to stock research and investing. And, and he asked me, you know, the market was in, I was probably around, I think it was the year 2000 when the market was going into May 2000, the dot, the bubble had burst mm. and stocks were in free fall. And at that time, under a commercial arrangement, I was asked to figure a stock to buy. And I remember being a little bit stumped. And I said, well, I, I can't figure anything in a market like this to buy. And very astutely, I was asked, well, do you think deep discount grocery stores like Dollar Tree and Family Dollar might see an increase in business 
in an environment where family homes have less. Yeah. And I guess the point he was making was that in every market, there's something that suddenly has an advantage. And so I guess the question that I'll wrap up my Copart <laughs> blurb on is, is do we, do you three think that Copart is a stock that would do better in a quote unquote recession? Yeah, I mm. think people are would be less likely to buy cars and more likely to retrofit them and repair yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Go second hand. Yeah. Uh, funny enough, there's two members of the my Wall Street team who worked for a competitor. Yes. And I think one of them definitely is a large shareholder in yeah. Copart, so he obviously sees the the potential in it. Totally. Totally. That's Niall Barry, just to name check. You'll yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be delighted with that. So uh, speaking of Copart, I just want to take a second to talk about some of the other things going on in the My Wall Street app at the minute. Last week we published May's stock of the month. Uh, that's the one stock our honest team loves most at the moment. This month's selection is a company that's been one of the best performers in our app to date, but it still looks like an attractive buy. Um, we also added a new stock to the My Wall Street app this week. Emmett, in the last episode of the Stock Club, you talked about the move towards 5G and the companies that you think would profit most from it. Is it fair to say this new stock is our 5G play? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Do you need more words? Very, <laughs> very well timed as well. Very, <laughs> you really timed the market there with that. Um, I don't wish to time the market, but when you look at uh, things happening, I think the stock we've just added to our to my Wall Street is is a wonderful business that will benefit from things happening. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, don't forget, you can check all of that out in the My Wall Street app right now. Um, Maeve. Jargon buster time. The first question is from Tony. Emmett, I'll give this one to you. Tony has asked, why do companies buy back stocks? A, a company, when it has cash on reserves, they have filled their coffers and their bank, bank accounts with profit, has a choice of things to do with money on the bank, in the bank rather. And they can range from developing new products, which could have R&D, they could spend on entering new markets, like we said Copart made clear. Uh, they could decide to pay a dividend, which is a way that generally older businesses return something to their shareholders. So there's a lot of choices for what any company can do with their cash on the bank. And one of those things is to buy back its own shares. So there are less shares in circulation and as often described, what that means is your slice of the pie gets a little bit bigger because there are fewer shares out there. Now, historically, and if you read most textbooks, they'll say it is a very shareholder friendly thing to do. So when a company takes a look at its cash, if you take Apple, has billions and billions. I, I don't know what's it got in the bank account at the moment, James. <laughs> you, you logged recently. in there and had a look. I know it has tens of billions, no worries. I think it's, you know, got the market cap of, of a whole, an awful lot of businesses on cash. So it ha- needs to decide what to do with that cash. And, and uh, as we know, Apple is an example, maybe about a year ago was under such pressure, probably two years ago at this stage, had to pay a dividend and started to pay out some of the money off their bank account. One of the things businesses do is buy back shares. Now, the reason I say textbook, it's a shareholder friendly thing to do. Um, it's pres- There's a presumption there that they're buying back shares at a reasonable value. But what it's a saying to the market, if the, the, the executive committee of a publicly listed company says they're buying back shares, what they in- 
it's tantamount to them saying is they can't think of anything better to do with their cash than buy shares in the business that they are running. And that is a massively positive signal. Now, the devil is in the detail. As I said, it, it requires them to buy back at a shareholder friendly price. But the macro headline that you'll read to do with share buybacks is it's a shareholder friendly thing to do with your cash on the balance sheet. 245 billion. Wow. <laughs> 245 billion. God, like, if they round that up to a quarter of a trillion, we're talking real money. They could buy, uh, <laughs> buy eight Ubers. <laughs> they could buy eight Ubers, yeah. Tony, well, we hope that answered your question. Thanks, Emmett. Rory, you're up next. Uh, the question is on expense costs for ETFs. That's so exciting. It's yeah. <laughs> why are some higher and why are some lower? There are some examples given for whoever yeah. whoever sent this in. So they're, they're kind of asking, if you look at ETFs like Hack and Robo, yeah. why are those expense costs higher compared to something like VU? Uh, well, the first reason would just be um, size. Uh, VU is a huge uh, ETF with lots of buyers in it, so they can have a lower expense ratio and still make money. Um, the other, uh, or Robo and Hack are much smaller. There's a lot less money in them, so they need to up the the um, what they're charging in order to make the thing work. Um, the other thing is that VU is just kind of tracking an index. There's very little kind of maintenance going on there, whereas something like Robo and Hack, they're actually going out and picking what stocks they want to be in that index and watching them and making sure that they're performing well and trying to figure out a good balance for the for the ETF. So there's there's a bit of kind of there's a bit more um, work involved in the, in the, in uh, in the background, and just finally as well, some sometimes ETFs will have uh, stocks that might not be very accessible. Um, so if you look at something like um, Robo, they've got companies from Japan and Korea and Israel that you know aren't listed on on the big U.S. exchanges. Um, I think actually the the biggest, the most expensive ETF out there at the moment is one that tracks the Bulgarian stock market. Which so it's just it's a hard market to 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 get into. So that's why the expenses is high. Cool. Thanks, Rory. The next question that was sent in is really not for anyone in particular, but maybe to the floor. And we've been asked it before and we've spoken about it. Um, it's about the trade war and it's saying that if that's still simmering between US and China, what companies and businesses stand to lose out the most? And also, is there any that stand to benefit in particular? Ooh, mm. uh, to get hurt, any company that sells to China any yeah. company, uh, chip makers are probably really high up there mm. on the list of, of companies that um, that'll suffer. Uh, automakers, um, agriculture businesses. Uh, I think the US sells an awful lot of soybeans to places like China. Um, then uh, you know you hear a lot of companies now that are actually moving their manufacturing out of China. So GoPro's moving their thing to Mexico. Uh, iRobot announced they're going to start looking at places outside China. Um, benefits. Uh, Yacht manufacturers. Yacht. <laughs> <laughs> Traders are doing pretty well out of us because yeah. they love the volatility. Anytime okay. uh, it's going up and down really quickly. I don't know who would benefit. And depends how it turns out. I mean, if we try and kind of, I suppose, that, that casts the net very wide. Like, is there any My Wall Street selections that stand to benefit in particular? Or, or would domestic companies, so companies that, you know, produce their stuff in the US, is it, that's obviously the intended um point of this whole trade war is to protect US business but is that the case? Uh, no. No. Because it's just it's uh, the tariffs aren't really tariffs they're just a, a tax on consumption. Yeah. The people yeah. who get end up paying them are low income families usually. Yeah. So. 
You know, you could look at, at the 105 or so stocks that we have in the My Wall Street app and assess each of them as do any, which of these companies sell product or move cash, if you like, or derive revenue in one direction or the other between China and the US. So they, you could look at, you know, there's a, you have to take an, a micro view of all the stocks and there are those companies like Copart, which you would expect will have absolutely no uh, exposure whatsoever yeah. to whatever the US decides to do with China. Would I be right in saying Copart? Mm. Well, the cars are already in the US, so there's no kind of import-export as far as I know. And then there's businesses that just have China written on top of them, like Baozun, and, and f even though their business is entirely within China, it addresses US companies, so therefore you could see that there's a risk in in their attractiveness to to potential clients in America. Mm. So you might have American businesses saying, uh, look, we're just going to cool off in China for the time being for any reason, uh, generally political reasons. And then there are those businesses that uh, ha are enti entirely within China and have absolutely nothing to do with the outside world, like uh, China Hotel Lodgings, as since renamed to... Huazo. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, there, uh, you know, we can take a look at each of them uh, and I think they, they require their own, their own uh, case study. But I do think that assessing trade wars is a difficult business and it requires a macroeconomist of brilliance the likes of which we don't, I, that I know of, have in this room. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't going to be an easily answered question. Yeah, I think the bottom line is that it, it threatens global growth and that's not good for any business. Okay. Great, that's Dragon Buster. Thanks to everyone who sent them in. And if there's anyone listening who wants to know something, send it to us and we'll talk about it. Up next, we have Elevator Pitch. Um, there's a small preamble here. So internally in my Wall Street, we have a couple of basic traits that we look for when we're sizing up a company for being a good investment opportunity. One of these is that they may have a female founder or CEO. And this is because female-led businesses have been proven in the past to outperform those that are led by men. With that in mind... The theme for this week's elevator pitch is what is your favourite female-led company currently? Okay. I will go to Amit first. Okay, well, Maeve, I'm going to go with uh, the second last stock I invested in, which is Stitch Fix. And the founding CEO, Katrina Lake, is the first woman to take who, who took a, an internet company public uh, in the year of 2017. Uh, she's 36. She runs a $2.5 billion business um, that she founded, and she is the real deal. And it, like in the same time frame as Katrina Lake brought Stitch Fix to the market, uh, the Elizabeth Holmes Tyrannus story was playing out in full fury. And Elizabeth Holmes was held up as the picture of female entrepreneur leader, when in fact, behind the scenes we have brilliant brilliant women leaders such as Katrina Lake who are doing something that has a real product that is uh, smashing quarterly numbers as Stitch Fix has done and it's really just uh, I think in the early stages of business and uh, to that point and I'll close on it Stitch Fix has just opened for business in the UK and the doors have opened on their business uh, next door to us and I think it's a great business built on AI with a, a wonderful founding female CEO leader. Okay, there you have it. Stitch Fix and the CEO's name is... Katrina Lake. Katrina Lake, okay. Rory, 
Over to you. Uh, this is going to be a short one because I've talked about this company loads before. It's got to be um, Mary Dillon, who's the CEO of Ulta Beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not a founder, uh, but she has been in the top job since 2013. Uh, came into a retail business at what was a very difficult time for retail. She totally overhauled the rewards program, which now has 31 million members. Um, that's twice as many as Starbucks. Uh, so much so that Starbucks have added her to their board and she's a potential um New, next CEO. Okay. So, um, she has led that company from then. It's up three and a half fold. Comps are at 10% every quarter. Uh, it's probably one of the best retail businesses uh, in America at the moment. So, yeah, that would mm-hmm. be my pitch. Mary Dillon Mary Ulta Dillon Beauty. Ulta Beauty yeah. Okay. James, so I pick assume fighter. we're picking the company or the person because I don't know either of them personally, but uh, the company. I really company, like, yeah. yeah, I really like Ulta. Um, I think they, they're they've got a good business model with that you know they're they're keeping pace on in-store foot traffic when most other people are moving online and it is obviously because of the product they sell but yeah I'm a big fan of Ulta do we want to throw into Giles for this one because I'm biased <laughs> I'll, pick, I'll pick both <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, which, which one would you prefer I'm, I'm, I'm more curious about Stitch Fix if I'm honest at the moment just because of the business model and the yeah. offering yeah okay Giles Giles hold up one finger for Stitch Fix and two fingers for Ulta Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix. Oh. Nice one. Rory, you're on a losing streak. You know. okay. But I, I, I must say, though, uh, on Ulta Salon, it is a business model that does not suffer in a downturn because you cannot uh, economise on looking good. <laughs> get out there and get your hair done. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, that felt like a quick um, stock club. That's it. That's yeah. a wrap. So there's a couple of things going on in the app this week. We have a new stock edition. We have May's stock of the month and there is a new expert opinion piece that will go live next week. Um, As usual, if there's anything that you want to send us to discuss or explain, you know where to get us. So it's either Twitter or email. The email is pod at mywallstreet.com, which is pod at mywallst.com. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, you can review it on iTunes or wherever you listen. We'd like to hear what you think. We'll all see you in two weeks and happy investing. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.